0: Uh, yesterday we finished off um, Dhamma Chaka Pavantana Sutta setting in motion the Dharma Wheel or simply turning the Dharma Wheel. Uh, this was taught on the full moon night of Asalha in July uh, two months after the Buddha attained awakening. Um, and there he taught the middle way and the four truths. So the middle way is um, was the strategy he used to break open the resistance of the five companions and this is the, the idea of the middle way in t- here in terms of practice between indulgence and asceticism um, where um, the middle way is not halfway in between but it's the place of no fixed position if it was halfway in between that would simply be another extreme kind of triangular model the middle way can only be found where there is no anta, no extreme so no pushing away no pulling towards so this is the place where we are not stuck on anything this is the place where we're not reaching out to hold something and we're not rejecting or resisting something and this place is not any kind of fixed position it's constantly moving and dancing and we're constantly trying to keep up with it and then the Buddha taught the four truths and Kandanya understood and um, he had his first glimpse of awakening and attained the first stage of enlightenment stream entry Became Anyakundanya, and his um, insight was expressed as "whatever is of the nature to arise, all that is of the nature to cease." So this is all about dependent arising, um, and of course impermanence. So the Buddha is very happy; someone's actually understood, and he's um, very pleased with the whole situation. The five companions now become his students. So there's now a a practice community. And then they begin (coughs) the um, first um, Buddhist meditation retreat. And the five students, the Buddha is the teacher. The retreat lasts, I think, five days. And um, it's a long retreat. Um, because they took a while to get enlightened Um, there was Vapa and Baddhya who they got it within the first couple of days then um, Mahanama and finally Asaji who was just incredibly thick (laughs) five days together anyway finally he did so at the end of this retreat there are five Aryas five cultivated ones refined ones uh, or six altogether including the Buddha and as each one attains the first stage of awakening they request and are given ordination so at this point there are five Bhikkhus Um, it's interesting that you can see the standard is um, pretty high for becoming a Bhikkhu you have to be awakened first <laughs> standards have slipped since
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> then when all of the five are, have attained the first stage of awakening, so they've all had a glimpse into the unconstructed then he gives them the second discourse, and this is Anatalakana Sutta uh, the, the not self characteristics characteristic Um, now what this suggests if we look at the context um, he hasn't actually mentioned anatta, now, not self of course it's obvious it's implicit in everything that's gone before but he's never actually mentioned it and now for the first time he talks about it and he gives a discourse explicitly on the subject of not self but he waits until his entire audience have attained the first stage of awakening um, and he teaches it with the intention to bring them to full awakening. Now, this what this suggests is, first of all, this is an advanced teaching. Anattā is an advanced teaching. Um, and the other aspect about it is that um, anattā fundamentally is not a doctrine that can be understood. Although lots of scholars and academics um, spend a lot of energy understanding it, writing about it, etc. Uh, but fundamentally it's not a doctrine which is to be understood. It's an experience which is to be realized. It's. I see it as Buddha's joke. If you tell someone a joke and having given them the punchline They look at you blankly and say, could you explain that? You know you're wasting your time. Even if they understand it, quote unquote. Oh, is that why it's funny? (laughs) Ah, It hasn't worked. With a joke, you either get it or you don't get it. And that's it. And anatta has the same quality. You either get it or you don't get it. You either see it or you don't see it. And this can be shown by the endless arguments, endless academic arguments about it that have gone on through the centuries and continue to go on. So I put all this forward because as a um, preliminary to, the, to my caveat, that we're going to have two or possibly three talks about this and I am not suggesting that at the end of them you will understand anatta I'm suggesting that at the end of them you will not so don't blame me I warned you in the beginning <laughs> one time in Sydney one, one fellow who is a long term practitioner and very active in local Buddhist circles he, uh, he, says, he says to me you know over the years I've heard a lot of Dharma talks from a lot of teachers about not-self and no one's ever explained it satisfactorily and he looked at me and I thought I hope he's not going to ask me to explain it and mercifully he didn't um, but that's when it really struck me it's like it's you can't understand you either get it or you don't get it and it's not easy to get well it is easy to get but it's not easy to be in the situation in which it's easy to get
2: Isn't it part of the first insight knowledge?
0: Um, it is and it's part of I mean these guys have attained first stage of awakening so they've seen into it
2: mm.
0: but there's something missing mm. there's something still that they haven't got but they've certainly got something and that or they haven't got something and that makes, means that they're right to get the, mm. get the full teaching. Um, and at the end, end of the discourse in fact they're all arahants. so this, is, this takes them from the first stage to the final stage so this is how I heard it once the Blessed One was living at Badanasi in the deer park at Isipatana there he addressed the group of five bhikkhus Bhante they replied the Blessed One said body is not self if this body was self it would not tend to get sick, and I could make it become what I want. But because body is not self, it does tend to get sick, and I cannot make it become what I want. Feeling is not self, perception is not self, constructions, are not self. Awareness, is not self. If this awareness was self, it would not tend to get sick, and I could make it become what I want. But because awareness is not self, it does tend to get sick, and I cannot make it become what I want <clears throat> so that's the, the opening line um, what I translate as um, s- to get sick um, abada, could be translated as affliction illness disease so it's a kind of a, there wouldn't tend to be anything wrong with it it wouldn't tend to be problematic, it would be another way of, of looking at it. Now, what I find interesting in this, first of all, the Buddha go, goes to the five aggregates, and this is the first time he's, he's laid them out. We talked about these before. Khanda, um, um, usually translated as aggregate. Um, I like Stephen Batchelor's translation of bundle. Um, and... Uh, whenever the Buddha talks about anattā, he'll talk about it in terms of these five aggregates Um, but you notice that the first time the Buddha mentions not self he presents it as bad news Um, but because body is not self it does tend to get sick and I cannot make it become what I want Uh, and I find this very interesting because certainly in um, Mahayana Buddhism, at least the Mahayana Buddhism that I've been exposed to are not so if he's always presented as hallelujah brethren, this is fantastic um, and even in Tata it's, it's kind of got a good news ring to it but the first time the Buddha mentions it it's clearly bad news anyway he's laying out the five aggregates he mentioned them in the first discourse Panchapupadana kanda, the five aggregates associated with clinging, now he lays he lays them out. Um, so body is all physical experience. Feeling we've talked about the hedonic or affective aspect of experience, uh, that which moves me, that which provokes a response. So I'm moved to hold on if it's pleasant. I'm moved to resist or reject if it's painful and I move to ignorance, doubt, confusion if it's not registered as being either painful or pleasant then perception, which I think we mentioned sanya, this is the recognition or interpretation of any experience in other words, what makes something familiar uh, we, we live in a familiar world I know what this place is I know what, who you are I can understand these words this is all the realm of perception. Then constructions. Here it means all choices or decisions to act. I think we talked about this last night. Finally, awareness, vijnana, the pure knowing or witnessing of any experience. Um, now these aggregates are associated with clinging. In other words, they constitute that which holds the potential for clinging, upadana that which we cling to in other words what we find irresistible um, essentially Um, if they're associated with clinging then they have to be attractive because otherwise we wouldn't bother Why why would I cling to something that was not attractive to me but they're attractive, not in a superficial sense of being, being you know nice looking and pleasant and so on, but in the deep sense of being what preoccupies us the most. So, what deep, most deeply preoccupies me? These are the the, the five aggregates. Uh, so, for example, our relationship to mirrors mirrors every day I look in the mirror if there's a mirror around to look at I will look at it if it's, if it's not around I won't but if it's there I'll have a look why? I know what I look like but I just want to check one more time <laughs> um, take for example, the attractiveness of our deepest pain that can arise during the course of meditation practice. It's incredibly attractive. Not in the sense that it's pleasant, but in the sense that it attracts our attention. Bam! The attention goes straight there. And we hold on to it ferociously. So it's deeply attractive. Uh, So we hold on to it, we cling to it. Now, for the Buddha... Clinging results in identity. This is why we hold on. And so the five aggregates are associated with the construction of an identity. When we cling, we know who we are and we know what we are. In that moment of holding on, that's when my identity is clearest. So that's who I am the face in the mirror. This is who I am. The one who suffers this pain. Um, So the aggregates provide identity and the attractiveness is that identity provides certainty. In the moment that I know who I am, I also know what the world is and what's going on and that identity is deeply satisfying and reassuring, even if what I take to be me in the world is incredibly painful. Still, at least I know who I am and what's going on. And the Buddha's first argument um, about not-self um has to do with this sense of certainty uh, he undermines it and he does does it through looking at the issues of control reliability, predictability so um, body, mind all experience is not self if it was self it would not tend to be sick, oppressed, afflicted and I could make it become what I want it would be under my control but because um, body etc is not self I cannot make it become what I want it does tend to be spinning out of control and being oppressive Um, so uh, when we actually examine the nature of experience one thing that comes up which is kind of really obvious for the meditator is that I realise that I am not actually in control of what happens to me I spend a lot of time trying to assert my control so if I come to a retreat well, I plan carefully I bring all the right stuff especially if I know the place come early so I get the good room get into the hall as soon as possible get the best cushions set myself up where I want to be And I'm trying to impose some degree of control and predictability and reliability into the experience. And the more familiar I am with the whole place, the more I can cultivate this notion that I can do this. The more familiar I am with the meditation practice, the more I can create fantasies of this time it'll be different. This time I'll be in charge. But of course, it always fails, it always falls apart. And the more we examine our experience, the more obvious it becomes that we're um, not in control. Nothing is entirely reliable and I cannot predict the future. I do not know what's going to happen next. So the Buddha is undermining this this assumption of self by undermining our sense of control and therefore reliability, predictability. Now, for the Buddha, well, first of all, he's looking at self in Sanskrit atman, in Pari attan. This is, um, uh, 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 atman is a technical term you find across traditions in India. And uh, you've always got to to be careful about the technical terms because what something means in one tradition isn't necessarily what it means in another tradition. Different traditions have the same, often they share the same vocabulary, but they mean different things. So Atman, when we talk about Atman, self, we think about Hindu traditions, but the Buddha's not using Atman in that sense. Um, He's using it in a more psychological sense. So, um, if one was speaking to a Vedantin, and if one asked how many Atmans are there in this room, the answer is obviously one. In fact, there's only one Atman in the entire universe. Uh, but from a Buddhist perspective, how many Atmans in this room? Well, there's, I think, nineteen. Each person is a is an or atma so the Buddha's is using self in a, in, a, in a psychological sense which is good for us because it's this is it's more familiar to us uh, what he's talking about now to regard oneself as a self what do we need what do we actually what's required in this first of all we have to be separate and distinct from other selves I'm me which means I'm not you so I have to have that clear sense of separation and distinctness this is me I am an individual I am unique and I am certainly not you so that's the first thing I need and I have to possess some unchanging characteristics that can provide me with some stable sense of identity through time so in my life I go through many ups and downs and I go through many changes but I have a sense that underneath all that it's me who's undergoing these changes that 20 years ago I and my life was quite different many things have happened in the past 20 years many changes but at the end of it it's me so there's, there has to be some characteristics of, of the self that do not change that provide the sense of stability on which I can build an identity and finally possession always entails some degree of control um, so possession is in the normal everyday sense of the word so for example take this watch this watch is my watch so I'm the one in charge Um, you can't tell the watch what to do you can't tell me what to do with it because it's my watch now as for your watch it's up to you I've got no argument with your watch unless it ticks loudly when I'm trying to meditate (laughs) But basically, it's all up to you. So, if I had no control over this watch, how could it be mine? It just wouldn't make sense. So a possession always implies some degree of control. But also um, this also incl- possession also includes aspects of myself to which it makes sense to describe as mine. when we were talking about mindfulness immersed in body we talked about how we have this relationship to this body this is my body now that makes perfect sense to me that's your body you do what you need to do with it but this is mine so I'm in charge of this body I'll decide when this body leaves this room Not you. Are we clear on that? (laughs) Um, So we have to have a sense of separation from other souls. We have to possess, have to have possessions, at least some of which are sufficiently stable that they can provide a sense of identity over a period of time. And whatever it is that we think we possess, we have to be able to have at least some degree of control over it Uh, the Buddha is in this opening section challenging these last two assumptions um, possession and control Uh, and he does it through the recognition of Dukkha which makes sense because he's just been talking about Dukkha so he now applies Dukkha to the self the fact is that there's Dukkha in every experience that we depend upon that we hold on to as constituting me in every single one of those somewhere in there is dukkha Um, there's an absence of control I'm not in charge and if I'm not in charge of it it's not mine so I don't own it um So um, the Buddha is, is undermining some of the basic assumptions that the ascetics hold in terms of their belief that they are someone. I am an ascetic, of, you know, some seniority, respected among my fellow ascetics. I'm someone. And he's starting to just tear this apart through this his first argument. Um, and then the Buddha moves on to the issue of change. He says, or impermanence. What do you think, Bhikkhus, is body impermanent? Or is body permanent or impermanent? Impermanent Bhante. And that which is impermanent, is it painful or pleasurable? Painful Bhante and that which is painful and subject to change is it appropriate to regard it in terms of this is mine, I am this, this is myself certainly not Bhante so here he shifts into uh, impermanence and uh, brings this out front and centre experience is impermanent it is anicca Um, it changes Uh, now when I first read this this discourse which was sometime in the mid 70s Uh, I found it very odd this dialogue is body permanent or impermanent impermanent yeah okay sounds reasonable and that which is impermanent is it painful or pleasurable painful and I thought what why what's the problem and I just couldn't see the problem. I mean, if nothing changed, things would get pretty tedious pretty quickly. And that they say a change is as good as a holiday? So this really bothered me when I first read it. Um, I just couldn't figure I just did not get the logic. I had to Okay, Buddha, you said it, apparently you're wise, but let's just move on here. Uh, it helps to actually look at the Pali word or in Sanskrit um, in both Pali and Sanskrit means permanent but it also means reliable so uh, let's say um, if I, let's say if one is running a meditation centre and one feels a certain insecurity about paying the bills But let's um, let's say someone leaves a bucket full of money in some kind of trust account or something and so there's a permanent income. Every year the centre's going to get guaranteed this amount of money handed to it. It's permanent. It's reliable. Uh, Let's say you're looking for farmland and you're told this has a permanent water supply it's permanent it's reliable so when the when the Buddha says permanent he's not just saying it doesn't change he's saying this is reliable I can depend upon this so when he says that which is impermanent is a painful or pleasurable the monks of course they say painful because they know what this means um what the Buddha is saying is, all experience is impermanent; it changes, and therefore it is unreliable. Um, ultimately, we will be disappointed with it, whatever it is. At some point, we will be disappointed. We will be let down, and this is just part of the nature of the of the universe. So, whatever we experience at some point is a source of distress Um, and therefore it's not worthy of holding on to in fact it's something to be let go of therefore it's not worthy to be considered self because to be considered self it has to be reliably, reliably all the time available So for me to be Patrick Patrick has to be available all the time. Does that make any sense?
1: No. No? Why not? That last name I never could get why does it have to be reliable to be self?
0: Because uh, it can be provided that it's there to be unreliable as long as it's reliably there. like this is happening to me. And I can count on that. But let's go on and see if it makes any sense later. Um, so the Buddha says and that which is painful and subject to change, is it appropriate to regard it in terms of this is mine, I am this, this is myself? Now here the Buddha presents what he means by self so this is is important because if he's going to deny self then we've got to know what it is that he's denying and he's talking about identity and we assume identity is something given so I am already Patrick Uh, but the Buddha is saying identity is an ongoing construction it's not something already given it's something that we're constantly constructing. We don't notice ourselves doing it most of the time, but we are in fact. This is what we're doing. Um, and he he says there's three movements in this construction. This is mine. I am this. This is myself. So these are three movements are craving, conceit, and view. So we'll have a look at these, what the Buddha's getting at. So the first one is, this is mine. Um, And this represents tanha, which we talked about last couple of nights, craving, drivenness. Here, the drive to possess. This is the raw energy. We talked about how uh, dukkha represents this painful space, empty space at the core of our being. And from that painful emptiness, we reach up and try to hold something, get something that we can draw into this space and fill it up, and get rid of this sense of unease. So we're constantly going out to hold onto something as a possession, and um, this is tanha, um, and this is or craving, and this is what drives consumerism and narcissism. So we talked about it in terms of consumerism. We we constantly want more stuff, um, and the appeal to greed is usually pretty successful in terms of social movements. Um, but more subtly, we can see it in our drive to possess experience. Um, when you come to talk about meditation experience, say in the interview, whose experience? do you come to talk about <laughs> let me Let me tell you about my meditation experience. Um, we talked about this in terms of this basic attitude that we have to experience. What is this to me? How does it fit in to my plan? How does, how is it, how does it function as my possession? So This is my meditation experience. Uh, And we just do that quite naturally. We don't even think about it. Uh, It's just obvious. Of course it's mine. It's certainly not yours. So it has to be mine. Uh, And if I feel that I've had a very successful retreat, I might say something like, like, I got a lot out of this retreat. (laughs) and again we use that kind of expression quite naturally it's totally meaningful so this is the drive to possess and possession has to do with um, identity where is the boundary of the self? where does the self end and the world begin? now most obviously the border would be here at the edges of this body but in fact, of course, the boundaries are wider than that. So again, the possessions like, well, this recorder is outside the boundaries of this body. But because it's mine, it's inside myself. My sense of self as I'm the teacher. And by the way, these are my Dharma talks. <clears throat> and if
3: hmm? you sure?
0: I'm positive and no no and this is another thing this is the next thing this is my meditation retreat I'm the teacher I'm in control and I don't want you's lot messing up my meditation retreat are we clear about that so when we start to look at the self in terms of possession the boundary of the self starts to go out and it gets um, bigger and bigger
1: so you're not my teacher I'm your student that's
0: right (laughs) (laughs) so you're all my students and I'm in charge that's why I'm constantly frustrated and disappointed (laughs) (laughs)
1: So if you're in charge, how come you haven't made us
0: all be enlightened yet? Well come I'm on. Trying to persuade you to, but you're just resisting me all the time. So well, it's on the one to Take
1: five
0: days. <laughs> yeah, we've got plenty of time. So stop mucking about. you've been too relaxed. Um, so um, this is mine is all about creating this sense of self and making it bigger and the bigger the better then we get conceit, I am this uh, this is um, the Pali term is mana um, usually translated conceit, it's not a very good translation but there's no English equivalent literally it's measuring If you if you did a Literal re- translation, it, w- it would be measuring. It is a measuring from the root ma to measure. So measurement, comparison. And I think um, I mentioned this before. Let's say I measure something. So I take out of something this pad. Pull out the what are they call
2: tape.
0: Tape and measure it. Now in in measuring it, what I've just done is define its boundaries. This is where it begins, and this is where it ends. And that means I've created separation. This is pad, and all of this is not pad. So you get a basic sense of boundary and separation. Um, so mana um, manifests as a fundamental sense of separation and therefore of comparison Uh, first of all there are borders Um, me, not me this, not this, that Uh, and also Along with part of this duality is evolves uh, values important not important um, and a- along with that comparison between them um, so uh, a lot of this has to do with a sense of location location in relation to the self so what's so I and mine are both here and they're important Um, you and yours is a bit further away and so not quite so important Uh, them and theirs is even further away and even less important Um, now this distance can be physical but it can also be in fact largely it is psychological um, so let's say in the in in the media if there's a disaster in India it'll be on page five with half a column if this corresponding disaster occurs in the US it'll be on page one with several columns it's would be more important because the USA is closer to us than India. Now that distance is not geographical. It's in terms of our identification. We're much more likely to identify with people from North America than we are with people from India. So India is more distant. For Australians you can see it in the sense that Europe is much more close to us than Southeast Asia, for most people. Europe is far closer than Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia is the place you fly over to get to Europe. And this again, this has got nothing to do with geography. This has to do with the um, sense of what's closest to me, what's me and not me. So this has to do with mana. Um, generally um, classically translated as conceit um, but really measuring now craving and conceit come together Um, craving energises conceit Um, conceit manifests in the basic, basic sense of I am at the behind experience there's this sense that I have that there's someone here who is experiencing so at the moment I'm experiencing giving a Dharma talk and I have this sense that this is happening to someone and the someone is is here now if as a meditator um, I was interested in finding out well who is that someone and if I turned my awareness around and went into the chitta to find that someone whatever I found that would be happening to someone so whatever I found would not be I am does that make sense? so you if you're, when you're practicing you can have a very deep Samadhi, concentration. You can be very intimate with the experience. A sense of self another, etc., in a crude sense, has dropped away. But there's still this sense that all of this is happening to someone. Mm-hmm. But you can't put your finger on it, on who that is.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Because it's always in the shadows. Now you take this sense of I am, add cravings, and craving is this raw drive always in search of possession so then it becomes I am this and the mind reaches out to grab an experience to identify with it, oh this is what I am so you might we might be meditating for example and the thought the mind is throwing up thoughts and they're just kind of bubbling up and disappearing and bubbling up and disappearing but if we look at the process of suddenly the awareness go, reaches out and grabs onto one of those thoughts, bang and turns it into something what's happened is this, there's this kind of background sense of I am but kind of there's an agitation in it I am, but what am I? I'm, I am, I am, bang I'm this, I'm this thought this is what I am And suddenly we're into creating an identity. So this is the movement, I am this um, conceit. And then finally we get view, this is myself. Uh, This third one, view, is the most visible, the most surface of the three movements. Um, And to a large extent, it's the culmination of the construction of a self into some kind of narrative um, some kind of story that defines myself to me and to others um, and I always like to quote Daniel Dennett he's an American American philosopher of mind I don't know if he's still alive but he is still still going strong very fashionable very good writer and back in the 90s he wrote a book called consciousness explained where he explain he says that we do not we do not tell our stories our stories tell us which is a very nice way of putting it and he says there are some stories that we keep coming back to again and again and again and again and again these are foundational stories that he calls the center of narrative gravity so they all come back to these ones and if we're looking for the self, that's where we find it but I think from the Buddhist perspective more accurately, this is where we find view, this is myself but craving and conceit, they manifest at more basic levels beneath the narrative in a the sense they, they fuel the narrative that with view the the whole movement bursts up above the surface and it becomes a coherent kind of story of some kind.
2: Patrick, would you say with Daniel Dennett's deep understanding of apparently no self, hmm. would he um, be enlightened? Enlightened? Um, yeah. Why wouldn't he yeah, No, he's insight?
0: he's thinking about all this. He's got intellectual insight. He's also a committed materialist who clings ferociously to that view Uh, who's the guy who's the, I think, Australian philosopher who talks about the hard problem of consciousness Mm, Peter Singer? no, no, not Peter Singer, he's an ethicist, I forget the guy's name he's big in consciousness studies Um, but he he talks about two problems of consciousness, one hard and one easy the easy problems are the sorts of problems that Daniel Dennett works on, like how does the mind work uh-huh. how does it function but the hard problem is basically essentially what's the nature of the one who is aware of all this
2: mm-hmm.
0: and, so and um, I heard Dennett being interviewed about this this follow and Dennett was just scathing and dumping on him it's just you know sense the outrage mm-hmm. how dare you even go there we've got to be scientific here and therefore materialist. Um, but self-view is all about meaning Um, uh, when I create a self I create meaning this is who I am this is what the world is this is what it all means in creating a self I've created what all of this means but I can't do that without some kind of story but the meaning is really important. Um, and the stories that I tell myself that explain what this means is actually more real to me than the physical world that I inhabit. And the example that I like to give is the activity of hanging out the clothes. Have you ever hung up the clothes? Now, Let's say you're watching somebody hanging out clothes on the line over there. You're watching this and you're thinking to yourself, what is that person doing? Well, the answer's pretty obvious. They're hanging out the clothes. But if you were inside that person, if you were that person hanging out the clothes, and let's say you were not impeccably mindful, which of course all of you would be, then the activity would be actually thinking. The hanging out the clothes would be on automatic pilot. The real activity would be creating a reality by telling a story to oneself. And the story would be more real and much more interesting than hanging out the clothes. And the story would be what is actually happening from inside, the experience. So the routine physical activity doesn't grab the attention. Why doesn't routine physical activity grab attention? Why is it so hard to stay with it? I think it's because its narrative power is weak. And therefore its capacity to give meaning is weak. Even if it's the direct, sensate, feeling aspect is strong, its narrative Power is weak. And we head towards the narrative power because that's where we find meaning. And in meaning, meaning we have a self, me, within a world, this world, of which you may not have noticed, I am the centre. So this is the, the The self from the Buddha is this process of construction. Uh, Now you notice also what strikes in this is in each case, this is mine, I am this, this is myself. So it's very specific. This is mine. This is mine. This is mine. I am this. Very definite, very specific. Um, The Buddha is not saying that there's no self. Often people think that he is. People think that he's denying, that he's putting forward some kind of philosophical, ontological statement, saying there is no such thing as a self. He doesn't say that. He says, this is not self he's not saying there is no self Mm
3: -hmm.
0: he's saying this is not self that's all he's not making a grand philosophical statement he's making a perfectly straightforward empirical statement this is not self and when we construct the self what we're doing is we're zeroing in on something specific. This is mine. This. I am this. This is myself. So, have you had the experience, for example, of sitting in the hall, perfectly still, perfect posture, completely absorbed in some narcissistic fantasy, in which you're considering? what a marvellous meditator you are <laughs> that you've finally got it worked out it's taken years a lot of struggle a lot of pain a lot of difficulty but now I'm, I've got it I've arrived I can afford now to feel compassionate for all these other jokers <laughs> they try their best and then at some point you realise that you've spent, been spending the last 15 minutes in this self-congratulatory orgy because of a fleeting experience of samadhi that was happened about 15 minutes ago and suddenly the story changes oh god I'm pathetic I can't do this it's impossible, I'm a crap meditator I'm the, probably the crappiest meditator in this room everybody else is doing well but I'm doing really badly and you notice that well first of all the two stories they can't both be true they could be both be false but they cannot both be true and yet, while we're in that one, this is me, and this is my world. And then, boom, no, this is me, and this is my world. And the identities completely clash with each other, with each other but we don't even notice that. This is mine. I am this. No, 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 I'm this. Now, come to think of it, I'm this. Now, I think I was wrong there, actually. Now that I'm enlightened, I realise I'm this. Uh, so it's this... Con- this, the Buddha is when he's talking about self he's not talking about something mm-hmm. any kind of being or entity that either exists or doesn't exist he's talking about a process a process of constructing someone
1: mm-hmm. and the process exists
0: hmm. it could be that dependent arising exists um, now this is um, one reason why uh, becoming sensitive to the thought stream is so useful because the thought stream represents a basic way in which we create a sense of self so being, being sensitive to it and tracking it is extremely useful now the fact that we create a self through our narratives or through our thought stream is not a problem it's just part of nature, we're designed to do that it's how what's just how we are designed our problem is that our creation is an expression of our delusion and as a result it it ends up with suffering with dukkha um, we create ourselves but because of our delusion and our drivenness we end up with a crap product and our normal relationship to narratives keep us locked into a very superficial dream world. So when we look at the mind and how the mind behaves we see that we create this dream world and it's driven by these drifting desires and aversions which are constantly changing. And any real in-depth contact with reality is blocked by these dreams that keep swirling around and we keep holding on to. Uh, the mind works with all experience coming through all the six senses but especially the mind um, to create some stable reference point which is me what the mind does in particular is it gives a narrative unity Um, it gives us as a stable point of reference for me and my world, I know what it is, I know who I am I know what this is Um, and yet the stability of this is always threatened by change and when I actually look at it it's never anything more than a complex web of concepts and feelings all swirling around conditioning each other and chasing each other but this is the self and the world that we take to be real um, so we create a self which is real but it's real only as a construct of the mind it has no reality other than that Uh, It's it's basically an organised network of concepts and associated feelings. very complex organised network. But we're convinced that there's more to it than that. Um, We believe that the self creates concepts and that our concepts point towards the self. So, for example, I believe that my fantasies of the future point to what will happen to me and what will be the world in which this happens yet when we look for who's creating these concepts we can't find anyone or take it the other way if we look for the person for whom these concepts are created so for example I'm doing walking meditation and I find my mind is creating a story and it might occur to me to ask who's the audience, who's the intended audience of this story? Who is this for? And again, I can't find anybody. So we're convinced that there's someone here. This is the the most fundamental reality of my life is that there's someone here. but this self which is so real and seems so important that it dominates the way that I live it's so ephemeral that I cannot pin it down in any experience and the more I try to pin it down the more I can't find it which is very odd it seems to be completely contradictory so If we can't pin down the self in our experience then then what is it? um, In the next talk we'll move on with the discourse and talk about the practice of not-self but if you want to play with this beforehand um, see if you can find the one who's creating the concepts see if you can find audience for whom the narrative is being told and see what you come up with. The Buddha is suggesting that you won't find anyone. Now you notice he's not making a philosophical statement that there is no one there. He's just basically at most placing a bet that if you look you won't find one. And he's doing this because he looked and he couldn't find one. So he's suggesting, well, why don't you look and see if you can find one? And the meditation practice is a way of looking. So is there one? Can I find one? So keep looking. It's a quite interesting project. Any questions or comments?
2: Well, I've been thinking about something or more more contemplating it and it was um, reading about uh, Buddha, Dharma Sangha mm-hmm. and um, reading about the um, um, Amara, Amara, which is, mm-hmm. book that I was talking about and he was talking about the Buddha and oh, like when we take refuge in the Buddha really taking it in refuge in our own Buddha,
0: our own Buddha nature, or our own mm-hmm. awareness, because you know, it be? historically died, you know, probably 2,500, 2,600 years ago. You can't take refuge in a being. You mean he didn't rise again? Sorry? He didn't
2: rise again? <laughs> or am I getting that mixed up with something else? That again, sorry? He didn't rise again from no. the dead? Anyway, basically... We take refuge in uh, uh, the quality of awakening within ourselves. Mm -hmm. Then we take refuge in the way things are, the Dharma. And then we take refuge in the Sankha And if we want to take that to represent ourselves, it is the way we act in the world, or the way Dharma is acted out or being as a a being in the world. Anyway, he basically said ultimate subjectivity is the the Buddha is ultimate subjectivity the Dharma is ultimate objectivity mm-hmm. and I wonder about the difference between subjectivity and that sense that I am that you are talking about you know like we feel like there's, there's a, a subjective sense of something happening to us mm-hmm. uh, but is, did the Buddha have subjectivity I mean, he would have had a sense of subjectivity wouldn't he but he wouldn't have confused it with being who he was, and he wouldn't have had that conceit. He wouldn't have had mana. Mm. So, what do you think about that? Do you think? What do you think, think about the difference? Do you think about the sense of subjectivity and the difference between that and the sense of I am?
0: To me, the the sense the the sense of I am is like cling wrap. Mm. A, it prevents me from being completely intimate with the experience mm. it, it's always associated with a sense of one step back mm. not not fully there mm. so when it, when it when it there are moments
1: aren't there where, yeah. it, where that's not there
0: yeah,
1: we have that and in that moment I guess I'm not thinking oh gosh this is me having this experience
3: yeah, it's,
0: it's <clears throat> moments, times when we're just completely with the experience. Yeah. They're so intimate, there's no sense of any audience. So
1: there's no self in
4: that moment. Yeah.
0: No separation. So, and that, that, that's realization of not self.
4: So. Or the survive. Hmm? We could call it the sublime.
0: Yep, we could. Uh, and sometimes what happens then is fear arises.
3: Yeah.
0: Now, as soon as the fear rises, it means suddenly there's someone back here to whom this is happening, and that someone is getting scared. Yes. Um, I find. I, one time I, I, I was quite interested in this this, this sense of the, the dropping away of the self, was. During one retreat, I was working on it through meaning. So, um, if there's meaning, there's an audience who appreciates the meaning. Uh, is it? Can I have an experience? That doesn't mean anything. Mm. So I was really very interested in that, and every and at times that everything would would drop away, and there was just that intimacy. But I wanted to. I was interested. I wanted to check out a, a thing about the body because I was interested in the body, and I wondered, what is the body like when the mind recognizes this? And I kind of programmed. Myself, got to check that when it happens. And one night, it happened, and I was doing walking meditation on this veranda. And as soon as I noticed it, I immediately started stretching. And I noticed that I could stretch further than I could a moment before. Mm-hmm. The body had just let go of a massive amount of tension.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And then the thought arose in my mind, I wonder how long this will last. <laughs> and,
3: mm-hmm. I'm, 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 and it was over <laughs> and the body was <laughs>
0: back to its normal state it's quite interesting that mm-hmm. even the body is changed yeah, but these, these glimpses come and go and part of the whole process is getting the allowing the glimpses to happen and kind of noticing that they are there because they they're very subtle because mm. it's an absence you're noticing yes largely in an absence, yeah. and then become, learning to become comfortable within that,
3: mm. and
0: therefore extending them. And this is what uh, the tradition calls Tadanga Nibbāna. Um, Nibbāna, um, Tadanga would be specific aspect. Nibbāna in its sp- sp- um, specific aspect of you know, just walking, or just seeing, or whatever.
4: Mm. The English Romantics, Coleridge and Wordsworth were into that same thing in, in the search for the sublime. Mm. That's exactly what they are interested in, that, that same feeling.
0: Mm. Yeah. It comes across in a lot of the Zen literature as well.
4: Thomas Metzinger, who's a philosopher and cognitive science, philosopher I've been following, he's got this nice analogy, you talked about it, where the, thought, where the solving process is both the object and the subject. Mm. Very hard to pick them up. He uses the analogy of the selfing process, giving us a user interface in the sense of a, uh, an idea of a constant now. It's always happening in the present. You mentioned the other night where it's not there. It's you know it's not there. It's there. This proprioception, this feeling of position. So it gives you a user interface to your external world. But even more profoundly, it, it gives you a, an avatar that can move around in this world that is, you actually are are tricked in the idea that it is you that's moving around in this space. He has a lot of clever experiments where he has a person tied up to an MRI in Tel Aviv who's moving a robot in London. He's extended the sense of proprioception through computer science and the MRI from Tel Aviv to. So, the six senses that we've been talking about are extended
0: across continents. Hmm. Um, that sounds scary. It is. But it's, it, it's, it's a very interesting idea, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, because Anatoly is part of nature, then of course it can be and these ideas
4: subjective really, really, to, you know, to cognitive uh, arms race all the way through from sort of slime right through to where we are now. who can actually emulate themselves in the world the best to survive at an evolutionary level. Mm. And we're really a product of that whole process.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Katie? Okay. Um, can it mainly only be recognised a nanosecond after it's happened? Mana? Um, the so, not self, because if you're completely okay. intimate with an experience, it's not till you realise, ah, oh, oh, I'm completely intimate with the experience, or something. Well,
0: once you say that to
1: yourself, well, I wouldn't. But it's sort of at the time I don't know that you can rec- one
0: could recognise it. No, not even, you couldn't recognise it in, in the sense of because that would be you saying it. what it is. Yeah, so it's just happening.
4: I think all is wordless, isn't it? You know, when you get to the top of the hill and you see mm. the tree up or above on the, on the sky, you know, silhouetted against the sky, it's just word, you know, it's, it's an oral type wordless feeling. Yeah,
0: mm. yeah. yeah it's just, it's basically, it's just whatever is happening. Mm. But it's not about whatever is happening. <laughs> there is no about. Mm. It's just what's happening.
2: You're
0: talking about suchness again. Yeah, we have come back to ta to suchness, just thisness.
1: I think the constraining uh, thing is that uh, the idea that something can only be experienced through the verbal storyline. When the verbal storyline drops away, the suchness, they're still known and still experienced. So, so, when the, the self and the storyline drops away, that experience is known in and of itself, Yeah. just in a non-verbal, non-conceptual manner. Yeah. A bit mm-hmm. like how we walk. It's a it's, a, it's a non-verbal experience, but it's still known. Right. How to walk is known. And uh, I think, you know, over the years you get used to it, and that's fine, so I'm, I'm imagining that the more often the self falls away, the more you get used to it, and the more you get used to that non-verbal experience of being intimate with the present moment then and what? not having to have a bunch of words to tell yourself the, the story mm. of being intimate with the moment.
0: Yeah. So and it's
1: still known, though.
0: But as soon as you're telling yourself the story, then what you know is the story. Mm-hmm. So you just separated out. Anyway, that's enough for tonight. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.